Boy, there is an amazing history to Teen Challenge. David Don Wilkerson, you're going to hear from a first-hand witness today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Blessings and grace to all of you today on the line of fire. Traditional Jews around the world, some have finished their fast. Others are fasting right now, asking God for mercy and repentance. Let's pray that God would convict deeply of sin and reveal the forgiveness that comes through the Messiah during this sacred time. Thanks so much for joining us today on the line of fire. We'll have a great Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast tomorrow. Talk more about these issues and some really interesting news from Israel. But today, our focus is different. And in a few minutes, we are going to be joined by the daughter of Don Wilkerson. She has a great book out with the history of David and Don Wilkerson and with the history of Teen Challenge Ministry. So, Really, really neat. We're going to talk about that. I think you're going to be tremendously encouraged when you hear that. Phone lines are open if you have a question you'd like to ask me. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call, 866-348-7884. Before we talk to Julie and before we talk about Teen Challenge and an amazing story of, of divine intervention, of divine mercy, of hope. If, if you're an addict, if you struggle with addiction, if you have a family member that does, at the bottom of the hour, uh, Julie and I will begin discussing things. So call a friend, tell him to tune in, and you yourself can listen with hope and encouragement. But we've got to deal with the news that's around us right now and the Supreme Court hearings, all right? So here's the latest. As of yesterday and earlier today, the accuser of Justice Kavanaugh, Christine, Professor Christine Blasey Ford, has said that she will not testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee until the FBI conducts a full investigation of the charges she's bringing. Namely that roughly 36 years ago, Justice Kavanaugh, when he was a teenager in prep school, was drunk and sexually assaulted her. And there was another friend there, Mark Judge, and that when judge jumped on the, the pile as well, she was able to, to flee. But she never told anybody about it until 30 years went by and it came up in a therapy session. So he has strenuously denied this. Said, of course, he wants to meet with the Senate Judiciary Committee to clear his name immediately. Mark Judge, the alleged other perpetrator in this or the other man involved, has said he has no recollection of this. He said it's absolutely nuts and that he's never seen Brett Kavanaugh behave like this. She identified another person that was allegedly at the party, and he has said no recollection of this, never seen Justice Kavanaugh act like this. So now you've got the other witnesses saying never happened, all right? You have the fact that he's been vetted by the FBI. Someone told me earlier today in an interview I was doing, he was vetted six times by the FBI. And and I, I spoke with... Well, I heard from one man who had been vetted one time by the FBI and said he'd rather go through an uncomfortable surgery than have that happen again. 
I mean, detail, 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 dig, 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 get in your past, dig up dirt, look for it. What about this? What about, because you don't want something to come up later. All right. Very few of us would come out of a vetting process like that smelling good. All right. So she is now saying she will not testify unless there's an FBI investigation. The FBI, from what I understand, has already said twice there's nothing to look into. So you have on the one side things very questionable from her. Can't even identify the exact place. When did that happen? Where the party was and, and what year and how she got there and all that. No details of that. So in a court of law, from what I could tell, this would not stand 10 seconds. It would just be an accusation without any details, aside from the fact it's 36 years late, but without any details. And, and then, along with that, other witnesses, now three, including the accused, all saying never happened. Never happened. Okay. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we must always seek justice. We must always seek impartiality. What if let's let's turn the let's just turn the 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 tables here for a second. All right. Let's ask a totally different question. What if this was Hillary Clinton, President Hillary Clinton? She won the elections. All right. And so let's say you're a conservative. Let's say you you didn't vote for her. All right. And you're a conservative. Let's say she was seeking to appoint a justice who would be as liberal as Ruth Bader Ginsburg as pro-abortion, as pro-LGBT activism, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Justice Elaine Kagan. And let's say it was a man, all right, for the narrative here. And a woman came forward and brought charges that she had been sexually assaulted by him. Would you be quicker to believe her than you are Professor Ford? Would you be quicker to say that uh, FBI must investigate, put the judiciary committees on hold, judiciary, uh, the, the hearings on hold, no vote. And, and she, look, enough women have been sexually assaulted. It's hard to come forward. The Me Too movement, uh, give these women a voice, empower this woman and stand with her and don't do what so many other men do in the society is just cast it off or ah, she was asking for it or we can't believe her. Or, ah, she was drunk or whatever. All right. So. What I'm challenging is our biases because truth be told, most of us live in an echo chamber and I reinforce your views. You reinforce my views. And, and then when we hear those, we differ with rather than saying, is there any credibility to it? Could this be? No, no. We dismiss it immediately. We throw it out immediately. All right. So I've got a new article on our, on, on our website no, no, it's, um, it's exclusively on the stream right now, stream.org. I've got an article about the, the challenge of impartiality, all right? How can we seek impartiality? How can we seek out justice, okay? So the article is called Justice Kavanaugh versus Professor Ford, The Challenge of Impartiality. And I note, justice must be impartial. It must be fair. It must not have preconceived notions. It must not show favoritism. It must be guided by evidence rather than preferences, by facts rather than sentiments. But in the real world, justice is hard to come by. All right. Now, I, I did a poll on Twitter. I asked my Twitter followers if they believed Justice Kavanaugh or Professor Ford or they were undecided. 74% said they believe Justice Kavanaugh. 
6%, Professor Ford, 20% were undecided. I did the same poll, poll on Facebook where I can only, they only allow two choices on our, on our Facebook uh, Ask Dr. Brown page. And, and it was 97% believe Justice Kavanaugh and only 3% believe Ford. So you say, well, why, why wouldn't people believe her? Well, the timing of the accusation surfacing and then Senator Feinstein only bringing it to light now, even though from what we understand, she was aware of it in July only brings it to light now. So the timing of the accusation and surfacing now after all these decades, uh, the professor's own liberal anti-Trump background and tried and true democratic strategies. If you think back to Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. All right. So this is, in that sense, out of a standard playbook, and there's reason for suspicion. And, and my, my colleague on the stream, Al Parada, pointed out that the accuser, Professor Ford, doesn't know the date, the week, and the month that the alleged sexual assault took place. She isn't even sure about the year. She doesn't remember how the party came about. She doesn't remember where the party was. She doesn't know who owned the house. She doesn't know who invited her. She doesn't know how she got there. She doesn't know how she got home. And... Al Prada adds, she does remember drinking. It was only decades later during psychotherapy that the story emerged. According to Ford, this is where she realized the impact the alleged incident had on her life and relationships. It could all just be imaginary. It could all just be completely imaginary. Look, there are people with uncovered, excuse me, with covered over hurts and pains. And during counseling, the thing comes to light. And suddenly a child remembers what, how they were abused and they've covered it and they submerged it and it's traumatic, but then they get healing and, and freedom from it. It also happens that people imagine things that never happened. And, and the fact that you've got all these details, doesn't remember how she got to the party, how she got home, but remembers this happening. Maybe it never happened at all. Maybe it happened with somebody else. Maybe, who knows, right? Or maybe she's outright lying. On the, on the flip side, you have Mark Judge, and, and I'm, I'm getting into this little exercise here for the, to teach us, to talk to us, to invite us, to, to examine our hearts and to see if we're seeking impartiality. Let's now flip things around and say that one of the, the people that was allegedly there with Justice Kavanaugh, Mark Judge, has said, that's absolutely nuts. I have no recollection of this. I've never seen Brett Kavanaugh act like this. But there's an article on, on, on CNN. You say, oh, let's say CNN. Well, that's the whole thing. We write the sources off immediately. We immediately dismiss it. If, if you're conservative, you like the conservative sites. If you're liberal, you like the liberal sites. And I can just post a news report from CNN or Huffington Post. And some conservatives are like, oh, I don't read that. It's just a new, it's an accurate news report. Or for others, I'll, I'll post from, from, from Breitbart or Fox. Like, oh, I don't read that. It's, like, it's just a news report. So the biases are there, right? So Sophie Tatum on CNN notes that Mark Judge wrote the book Wasted, Tales of a Gen X Drunk, where he details his experience of extensive drinking while attending Georgetown Preparatory School. That's where Justice Kavanaugh went with him. Judge writes that he's shocked about what he got away with in high school, recalling beach parties that hundreds of people would attend. At another point, he describes his high school as positively swimming in alcohol. All right. He also had harsh words for President Mrs. Obama. Not to mention quite a few comments that could be taken as sexually degrading to women. And CNN also notes attorney Seth uh, Berenswag, a Virginia-based lawyer who otherwise has no connection to Kavanaugh or the allegations, 
was given a copy of the high school's 1983 yearbook by an individual who requested anonymity. The yearbook features captions such as, do these guys beat their wives and prep parties raise question of legality? So obviously they're being silly and, you know, frat house type talk. But fact is, do we believe Mark Judge is a witness? Now, uh, my, my suspicions are very grave against the accuser for many reasons. And no one else has come forward with a similar story about Justice Kavanaugh. No one else said he's ever, they ever saw him act like this. No, not a single one has said they've ever seen him act like this in all his past and all these years. And this is after the FBI's extensive vetting and vetting and vetting and vetting of him. So there are many reasons to question this. But my stance is, let the facts come to light. My stance is, let the truth be known. I don't believe or dismiss either one based on their saying it. I look for facts. Oh God of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. It's the line of fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. This is why we say what we say. We do what we do. We write, we preach, we teach, we do radio, we do videos to serve as your voice of moral sanity and spiritual clarity in the midst of a society and chaos and church all too often in compromise, seeking to to equip you and help you and serve you. That's why we are here. Hey, a quick reminder, quick reminder. Uh, and can I give a plug for my own book? Is, is that allowed? Is that okay? All right. I am in the process for the first time of, of narrating, reading one of my books for an audiobook. And this is my new book due out October 23rd. Donald Trump is not my savior. An evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. Whether you voted for Donald Trump or you didn't vote or you voted against Donald Trump, this book is for you. It'll be eye-opening and it's so important to, to get and read and have before the midterm elections and before the 2020 elections. But as I've been reading through the book, I, I, I know I wrote the articles, but I'm so glad we're getting them out in book form. I, I wrote brand new material for the beginning, answering the question, evangelicals and Donald Trump, is, is this uh, a, a match made in heaven or is it a marriage with hell? And, and then I end the book with insight, seven points in terms of how do we move forward from here? And then the heart of the book is we took about 90 articles from August 2015 till August 2018. Every article specifically and only about Donald Trump or Donald Trump and evangelicals. All right. That's how many I wrote over this time period. Uh, we, uh, a few others weren't as relevant. We didn't put them in. But there are so many points that I felt were important that I wrote in the articles. Now the articles are passed. You, you don't go back to it. Well, here's a way to be reminded. It's like, Okay. Here's an insight we did have. Here's something we saw coming way before it happened. Here's a concern we have. Was it realized or not? Here's where this president surprised us in amazingly good ways. Here's an area for concern and disappointment. And as I've been reading, I'm thinking, I'm so glad that I can get everything in back in your hands in one book, in, in one place, and you can have it. So again, you can pre-order online, Amazon and elsewhere, but the best place to go to get a, a special collector's edition of this. We do this one time only. 
The first 500 copies will, will be, or up to that, will be numbered and signed. It may be the first 100, 200, however many specific orders we get, all right? So this is a, a hardcover edition that we're printing, and I will sign it to you with a scripture reference, and it'll be numbered. So you got, you were the 33rd to order. You were 78th to order. You were 114th to order. You're number one. Every so often I'll meet someone and say, I was number one on this book, or I was number 61 on this book. And so go to our website, get as many copies as you want. It's a great holiday gift too as well. Read it first for the elections and then and then have it. Uh, go to our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and you'll see it on a banner right there on the homepage. All right. Let me get to the heart of what is really going on with the battle over the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. The real issue is not a question of sexual assault. The real issue is not, is he qualified to sit on the bench? The real issue is stop him at all costs because he might be a deciding vote that could overturn Roe v. Wade. The real issue is abortion. That is the issue. A woman's quote, right to abortion. Hence the protests, hence the anger, hence the last minute tactics to derail this. God knows what happened or didn't happen with Professor Ford. God knows every detail of Justice Kavanaugh's life. But that is really not the big issue here. This is a battle about abortion. And let me just say that God willing, as the Supreme Court takes righteous steps to undo its unrighteous acts in the past, or something happens that one day undermines Roe v. Wade, and now it goes back to individual states, you are going to see anger like you have not seen before. You will contrast that with pro-life rallies, with peaceful, gracious pro-life rallies, with decades and decades of compassionate pro-life work in front of abortion clinics. And yes, there have been a few atrocities, a few terrible, horrific, inexcusable acts where someone was shot or someone was wounded. But for the decades and decades of activism, of reaching out, of pro-life rallies, these things are the terrible, ugly exceptions to the massive, massive rule. Contrast that with what you see in the pro-abortion demonstrations, the anger, the hatred, the vileness. I, I mean, things that are ugly, bathroom type ugly being done in public. All right. If there is further damage done to the pro-abortion cause. If there is further turning towards righteousness and compassion to save the lives of the unborn and ultimately to do what's best for mothers, which is never killing the child in the womb. If we see more of a turn like that, if this sacred cow gets threatened, expect all hell to break loose. Expect anger, vile anger. Anger against God, anger against Christians, anger against the Bible, anger against conservatives, anger against the courts, anger against the Republican Party. And I put Republican Party last because there's, there's enough corruption there in, in the whole political system. Mark my words, friends. The more this gets threatened, the more you will hear screaming on a hysterical level. Now, in the midst of all this, there are women who are struggling and hurting. 
And for the most part, they are not the ones that are out there protesting and yelling and screaming. There's a, a, a poor woman living in a rundown community with three kids that she can barely feed. And her boyfriend took advantage of her. And now she's pregnant. And she's, she can't possibly countenance bringing in child number four without a father in the home. And, and, and she's struggling. Do I abort the baby? And I, we want to put our arms around that woman. And we want to love on that woman. And we want to say, hey, that baby in your womb is a gift from God. And if it's not a gift that you can keep, there are many others that will cherish that gift and raise that gift and pour into that child in a way that you'll be proud to meet that kid years later. You don't condemn that person as a wicked, foul sinner to even consider. No, you recognize there are some people wrestling. And those that think, well, my baby was diagnosed as handicapped in the womb. And I don't think I have what it's going to take to, to care for a handicapped child. And yeah, there, there are deep, difficult issues. And that's where the church, we who love life, we who love people, that's where we come together and help and support and say there is hope and there's an answer. Don't kill that baby. Let's, let's look at this together and find a solution that will bring life and happiness, and hope to all. There are solutions. But friends, let me say it again. The battle over the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh is a battle over the, quote, right to abort babies in the womb. And you will see the most radical feminist anger, the most anti-male anger, the most perverse public actions, and, and even acts of violence, you will see them commonly on some level or another to support a woman's, quote, right to abort. And one of the most interesting things of all, you'll find Satanists joining in. You'll find atheists joining in. You'll find gay activists joining in. You think, isn't it interesting how they all come together so aggressively opposing the cause of the life of the innocent. That's what the battle is over. All right, I, I think tonight I, I want to write an article about that. I, I tweeted, let me just see if I can find the, the tweet that I, I sent out. Yeah, here, here it is. I sent this out last night, regardless of the charges against Justice Kavanaugh. This much is absolutely clear. The frenzied attempt to try to keep him out of the Supreme Court is simply a battle for the right to abort babies in the womb. That's the bottom line. And, and then, and then I, uh, I saw an article on redstate.com. Let me just see if, if I can spot that. An article on Red State that said this very thing. Uh, where is it here? Yeah, what, what it simply said was, bottom line, this is not about sexual assault. I believe it's on Red State. This is not about sexual assault. This is about abortion. So whatever happened with Professor Ford, let the truth come to light. Let the facts come to light. And then we evaluate based on that, not based on political preconceptions, not based on our own leanings, liberal, conservative, not based on any of that, not based on Professor Ford's political history or liberal views, not based on Justice Kavanaugh's conservative leanings, simply based on evaluating the facts as best as we can, looking at the overall body of evidence. All right, fair enough. That's what we do. 
But we also isolate and recognize that this battle, this frenzied attempt, the protests, the the crazy efforts that have been made, the, the slanderous charges that have been brought against him, they are all inspired by the desire to keep abortion legal in America up to the end of the ninth month of pregnancy. I mean, that's where we stand right now, legally, under Roe v. Wade. Okay, we come back changing gears. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. A brand new book out, Giving Hope an Address. I wrote an endorsement for the book. And uh, reading it, it, it gave me insight into David and Don Wilkerson as many hours as I spent with them and preaching and ministering for them. Felt I got to know them much better than I ever did before. Okay, we'll be right back. Stay right here. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, one of the things that we always seek to do here on the Line of Fire is encourage your hearts, give you hope. We talk about rough issues, tough issues, difficult issues, controversial issues, but always from a perspective of the goodness of God, always a perspective of God being the one that we look to always with hope in the midst of the storm and the challenge. And today we're going to encourage your hearts, those of you who have been blessed over the decades by the ministries of David Wilkerson and Don Wilkerson, those of you who've been blessed by the ministry of Times Square Church birthed by the Wilkerson brothers, those of you who've been blessed by the ministry of Teen Challenge around the world, You're going to go behind the scenes today and find out some things that will edify and bless you. There's a new book out. I wrote an endorsement for it, Giving Hope an Address, The Teen Challenge Legacy Story, written by Don's daughter, Julie Wilkerson Close. And I had the privilege of preaching at Times Square Church between 40 and 50 times from 91 to 95 and became a good friend of Don Wilkerson got to spend hours with David Wilkerson as well. I used to say David was so intense, it was kind of like fellowshipping with a razor blade. But one of the great joys and privileges of my life was that season. And and over the years, I've seen the worldwide impact of these ministries, and in particular, Teen Challenge. And, and I felt like this book took me behind the scenes in a deeper way and gave me more of a realization of, of how these young men just stepped out in faith and how God moved so miraculously. So, Julie, I've been looking forward to having you on the air. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Julie, after all these years of Teen Challenge, what what motivated you to write this book? Well, my dad approached me um, uh, several, about two years ago, of writing, and I, I had been writing for um, blogging and writing for a different couple, you know, couple of different outlets. And um, when he approached me about writing it, I, I it didn't take me very long to, to really feel called to write this, because we were coming on this year's 60 year anniversary and i realized that my generation and younger don't know the story of teen challenge they don't know this this story of what happened in my family and with my uncle and um it was just time to to tell it and with a different perspective 
And um, it, it's just been, it, it's, it's been a neat process for me as a writer, but it, it's just, I think it was a timely, just a timely, you know, uh, book to write. Yeah, and, and how much did you learn in the process of writing it? I learned a lot because my timeline is, um, is the, about 10, 12 years, and it really stops in 1973 when I was born. So, yeah, it was um, by research and everything. It was kind of like I could be very objective and I could see my dad and my uncle in a very new, uh, you know, in a new way. And they were characters to me in a story. So it was pretty unique. All right. So, so let's, let's go back to the, the early origins and, and tell us about your grandfather and, and the way that, that he and your grandmother raised your dad and your uncle. Well, they, um, they were, so he was initially, he kind of stepped away from the faith. He went into, into the Marines. And um, he came back, um, met my, interesting enough, met my grandmother in a dance hall, um, which was a great story in itself. And, um, and his father was a minister. He eventually just felt the calling of God to be a minister. And so they, he and my grandmother um, were ministers. Um, they started out preaching and, and um, pastoring churches in the Great Depression Error. So um, that was a unique part of the story, and, and kind of researching that, and, and they grew up in this Pentecostal, you know, faith time of um, legalism, which was very common during that time. Um, you know, the kids, my father, and and the five children weren't allowed to do a whole lot, um, even play board games, and that was an interesting part of of my story, um, and how you know that their faith had evolved, and 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 their and um, in in the process, and really the unique part of it is as as um, objectively and as a daughter, I was thinking, wow, they grew up very legalistic, but they created this ministry that is abounding in grace, mm. and so it was a very unique uh, revelation for me. All right, so that's that's part of the upbringing. They also grew up though with an emphasis on on prayer, didn't they? I mean, they they, they learned yes. to to really look to the Lord. Yes. Yeah. And that was a huge, and that was, you know, and that's pretty much a, a theme that really um, is throughout my story. And yes, they were very, you know, of course it was the Great Depression, everything, their their needs were based on prayer and, you know, just their family needs, but their pastoral needs. And so my father and my uncle and, and the five children were raised under this just, you know, um, prayer was just the foundation of their family. And, um, and it was, the other unique part of it is, you know, the kids would hear my grandfather in his study praying to God, you know, and just crying out to God, and it was a part of his 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 everyday his you know his job as a pastor to close behind closed door and pray. And I grew up with that too, so that under with my father, so that's something that um, was very important for the story because prayer was so strong in in my family, and it really helped to develop my with my father and my uncle and why they could step out with such faith and just, you know, and prayer in creating the ministry of teen challenge. All right. So teen challenge really has a, a highly unlikely beginning because you've got two guys from the country with a yeah. ministry background, with no experience in drugs, with no right. experience in the inner city, with no experience with gangs. And for those that don't know the story, there's the famous embarrassing photograph it ends up being used by God 
to launch a ministry. So for those that don't know the story, tell us the story. Well, so the story starts with my uncle. He he was called to New York. He was pastoring in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania um, at the time. And he opened up Life magazine, and he saw a trial that was happening with these seven boys who were on trial for killing a boy named Michael Farmer. And they were part of a gang. And when my uncle opened up that Life magazine, he was just so burdened by those boys were on trial, and he said he just felt God calling him go to go to New York City and help those boys. And so, and he tells this this miraculous story in the Cross and Switchblade, and 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 um, many people have read that that book, but there's a whole new generation that don't don't know the story, and that led to him eventually going to New York and and um, reaching the gangs of New York City. And there was, there was, a, there was an infamous picture of him. He went to the courtroom, tried to reach those boys. The, the, drug, the, the judge kicked him out, and he, um, the, there was a bunch of news media out, outside of the courtroom, and they asked him to, to hold up the book he had in hand, his hand, which was the Bible. And so they took a picture of him outside the courtroom with his uh, Bible in his hand, and they basically, the headlines the next day were, you know, there's this crazy minister that was trying to... To reach the gangs, and you know, it's not likely we'll ever see him again. And um, basically, calling him a fool. Yeah, and really, that's how it looked. It looked like it brought reproach to the gospel, but God. Right. So right. And and again, folks, get the book "Giving Hope an Address." Julie Wilkerson, close to the last name K L O S E, "Giving Hope an Address." You'll find it to be an enjoyable read, a faith building read an encouraging read. Uh, and Julie, there's some stories you tell <laughs> that are, you know, about the beginnings of things and being with these drug addicts and the whole, you know, it was a wild scene. And so let, let's just take one little picture here. What, what were they filming? What, what happened with this story? Well, the big, uh, what I start out in my book is there's, a, yeah. So, it was kind of, he, now they, you know, back up a little bit. He had been in, in David, my uncle, David Wilkerson, had been in the city a little while now and been helping and trying to reach gang members and then also help those addicted to drugs. And so he knew that, you know, okay, so you have to also understand this was the drug, drugs was an epidemic was, was happening in New York City, but this was new. You know, no one understood the drug, drug epidemic at the time, and no one really understood what addiction was outside of New York City or, you know, major cities. And so, um, but my uncle w- was seeing it every day. And so um, he knew that he had to go and take this, um, this picture of what he saw every day and, and just visualize it for people outside the city. And so he and my, my, my father went up to a rooftop um, asked a couple of, 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 of drug users if they could film them um, shooting up uh, on you know the top of a building, and they did. This is this completely and, uh, out of their world to do this. Yeah, right? yeah, it, completely out of their world. And you know, it is comical being the daughter of and you know, niece and realizing these two basically, you know, <laughs> country country pastors are filming these drug addicts. You know, and uh, so they're if filming I, if illegal I activity. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and um, and so I won't give the whole story away. You no, have to no. read, read the book. But um, and it's interesting what happened. But that that right there was something that really sealed in both the hearts of my of my father 
and, and my uncle of what they needed to do and the burden to reach those lost in addiction. Mm. And, um, and that was, that was, that's the first part of my book that just kind of reveals something that, and it's just amazing what has, uh, you know, writing this book, wow, what God has done since that time. Um, we have Teen Challenges, 14, about 1,400 programs in 125 countries. That's unreal. Um, it, it is it's unreal, totally unreal, and it's humbling as as a daughter of you know and connected with this ministry through this through my family. It's so humbling. Yeah, and and what about the success rate of Teen Challenge historically compared to the success rate of government programs? Well, you know that's interesting because they did do a study back in I believe it was the seventies when Teen Challenge was fairly new, and you know it, it was uh, about eighty four percent success rate. And they really haven't done, um, from what I can gather, they really haven't done, you know, a broad study anymore because it's very hard to, <laughs> it, 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 specifically, it's, it's very hard to, to put everybody's story, you know, in, in, um, in statistics. But um, I, I can tell you that I have come across people, I come across people still every day, even when I, you know, write in this book about how many people have been touched in some way by the program of Teen Challenge, whether through um, addiction um, or just someone within the program who told someone about yep. Jesus Christ. And it is amazing how many people are have been just touched by this by this ministry. And I, I'm always amazed by by someone's connection to um, the, the ministry, wherever that is, in another country or in the, in the United yeah. States. Yeah, I'm just, I'm going to jump in. We, I, I want to talk about Julie, your dad. Just this amazing spirit of faith and exuberance I've had working with him, seen in him over the years. We'll talk about that. The book, Giving Hope an Address. It's a great read. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on the line of fire. I was just looking over at Amazon, the new book, Julie Wilkerson, Close. That's K-L-O-S-E, giving hope and address. Just came out early this month. The first reviews on Amazon, all five stars. So once you read the book, post a review on Amazon, encourage others to get it as well. But Julie, one thing that, that I really especially enjoyed working with your dad and, and, and I got to know your dad better, spent more time just kind of hanging out, having meals with, with, your, with your dad over the years uh, in New York City. But nothing ever seemed to phase him. And I remember every question I'd have, like, okay, if we're going to do this outreach, how do we follow up from here? He said, hey, you leave that to us. We'll take care of that. And, and there was always a smile there was always a faith and you had the sense that, that there was this the spiritual foundation that was not easily shaken. So you were raised uh, with, with Don Wilkerson as your dad. What we see like in that respect as a father. And did you see that same spirit in him as a, as a daughter growing up? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, and it, it's interesting because I write in the book because I'm writing about these two brothers and how, different their personalities were um yeah. and how unique they were and um 
anybody who spends any, you know, my uncle passed away in 2011, but anybody who spent a little bit of time with my uncle and then my dad realized how, how unique they were. Um, yeah, you know, I, I saw my dad, my, my dad, I really think in writing this story, my dad's purpose, um, you know, he wanted to be a pastor and, and he what and he wanted to pastor a church like his dad and really God did use him in that role in Teen Challenge as a pastor. Um, you know, I I have so many people who have called him their spiritual father. And, you know, now as, as a daughter who has my own children and seeing that they call him that, it means so much to me because I realize the role he has played in so many different people's lives. Um, and just being that counselor, that pastor role, um, you know, a, a, a leader, but a, a leader who lets people um, lead under him. And um, he's been a great um, role model for me in watching and, and just knowing and writing this book. Wow. God used him with a special purpose for the ministry of Teen Challenge. Yeah. So so speaking of Teen Challenge specifically, and, and he's worked with some of my friends there over, over the years as he led Teen Challenge internationally and then and then was involved in, in the Teen Challenge Brooklyn over the years again, more recently. Uh, mm-hmm. One one thing that I found interesting is, again, he's, he's got no drug background. He's not yeah. street savvy. And and yet he really learned how to deal with drug addicts. And, you know, when I was doing drugs in my teen years, because I was not a long-term junkie or, or from that street culture, I would get duped by these guys, and their stories seem so believable. I mean, they get Oscars for their acting, so absolutely believable. So your dad learned, I, I don't know how quickly, but he learned that once you got the drug addicts saved and solid and discipled, that they were the perfect ones to run the programs because they, they knew drug addicts. They could see through the lies and figure this stuff out. Right, yeah, and yes, and, and if people will say to me, um, you know, people who were saved and, and reached through the ministry and, and, and were reformed in their, you know, addiction, they would say to me, and some of that I interviewed, you know, your dad could just, you know, your dad was real. We, we had, you know, we were on the streets with people who were phony and we could see right through them. But your dad and what, and what he said to me, I knew he, there was something about him that they were real, that he was real. Um, and I think that, you know, that comes with, he was very, very young when he when he helped and started directing Teen Challenge. He was in his early twenties, and mm-hmm. you know, he I, in my book I share about his struggles with with learning how to um, help those who are coming off the street. And it is comical how God can. It's comical, but it's just like God, isn't it? To just use anybody for for His purposes, um, even someone <laughs> like my dad who wasn't quite the 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 fit for helping those um to be rehabilitated with drug addiction um so it 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 really got and there, you know there's a quote that i just read today um i thought it really really resonates with what what my father and my uncle did with with those in teen challenge it says god doesn't destroy people who are at rock bottom god recreates people at rock bottom and that's what teen challenge does and that's exactly what my uncle and my father knew what god could do with people who were just broken in, in addiction, um, and not just addiction, like any life-controlling problem. Yeah, so I, I want to ask you a question about your uncle in a moment, but throughout the book, great stories, great quotes. Again, the name of the book, Giving Hope an Address. Uh, 
I, I was very much familiar with the story of Teen Challenge. I read Crossed in the Switchblade decades ago. I saw the movie even before that. Had the privilege of, of working closely with David and Don Wilkerson for years in the early 90s. Have been friends with Don to this day. Uh, spoken to him just a few months back. And yet for me, the book brought me behind the scenes, shared things with me. So if you know the whole story, you'll enjoy the book thoroughly. If you don't know the story, you've got to read it to find out. But before I ask you a question about, about your uncle... So many stories in the book, great quotes. Tell me one of your favorite stories that you recounted in Giving Hope an Address. Oh, my favorite is my grandmother, because my grandmother, um, you know, she was, I, I talk about this in the book, my, my grandfather died at a, a, a fairly young age in his mid-50s, and um, right, before, right before Teen Challenge started, and, you know, he didn't get to see any of his success with um, my uncle and the Cross and Switchblade and the movie, and so my 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 grandmother, um, they termed her lovingly Mom Wilkerson. She was a part of of the ministry in the very early days. It was in I talk about it. She was just her and my dad and and um, my uncle starting this this ministry um, in basically a, a one one room built one room uh, apartment. Um, and uh, her faith and her she she had a ministry in. Uh, in Greenwich Village, and you know, I knew this. But again, this was all I've, my stories before I was born. But I didn't realize how. Um, again, going back to that prayer of my family, how bold she was, and you know, they called her. She was like bold, like a lion, and she just was. She would. She was a. She was about five foot two, maybe at the most. Mm. <laughs> she was a tiny woman, and she would go up to anybody, and she would pass out a track, and she would go on the streets, and she would minister. And I think that's just a, another part of this story of just you know, it's something that I kind of feel like in our in our day and time we're missing a little bit street evangelism, um, and just going out and and just going out and <laughs> being bold and just telling other people about what God can do in, in, in um, their lives. So that's just, as a granddaughter, it was just a very unique part of the story. Yeah, and, and through the, the book, it talks about what God is doing, but through people. So it's, it's a right. very human book in that respect. All right, we, we just got a, a couple of minutes, Julie, but uh, obviously I got to know your uncle in a ministry setting. He was very compassionate and kind to me, uh, very gracious, very full of wisdom, but also a real prophetic guy that, you know, I, I never felt totally relaxed even having a dinner one-on-one -on -one just because of who he was. What was it like to have David Wilkerson as an uncle? <laughs> it was very similar. You know, he, he, he wasn't the uncle that, you know, it, it was a very similar experience. He was kind of always a kind of foreboding character. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, But, you know, I have a different appreciation for him in a, in a way, um, you know, looking back. And um, he was, he, what, what, how God used him was, was an, an amazing way. And um, it, again, I think that, that it makes me appreciate those different characteristics in both my father and my uncle, and knowing that God used those personality, um, you know, very different personality traits in very amazing ways. And so even though my uncle wasn't so personable, you know, that I knew him like your traditional uncle, um, I'm just grateful how, who he was. <laughs> and, you know, the, the thing that's nice in the book, you can, you can write a book about people that so exalts them 
that they're untouchable and mm. you, you can't ever think of being like them. Or then you can just make them so human that there's nothing inspiring about their lives. But I True. thought you did a really good job of, of painting a picture of, of real human beings with, with real weaknesses and challenges, but who really knew the Lord and who really went for it and stepped out in faith and, and who really walked in integrity and, and God blessed them. So in the last minute, what are you hoping that readers will get out of your book, Giving Hope an Address? Well, m- my biggest hope is we're in the midst of an opioid crisis, and I just wanted to give, um, I wanted to tell a story. And in the back of my book, I do have seven testimonies of what got, you know, people who went through a Teen Challenge program and what God has done. And I just wanted to just um, let people know the faith-based response to addiction works. I've seen it. I grew up in this ministry. It's, um, it's just, I cannot tell you how many people have have found hope because of the ministry of Teen Challenge or and very and other ministries that have come out of Teen Challenge um, and the faith based response to addiction. And I just kind of want to put it out there. And why we're in the midst of this opioid crisis, reach out, find out where your local Teen Challenge is. You most likely have one in your state. Um, and the faith based response works. Jesus does. Um, he can create you know, he can recreate your life. And addiction is not, it's not a life sentence. And friends, uh, Eric Metaxas wrote the foreword to the book. As I said, I've endorsed it. Pastor Jim Simbola endorsed it. And above all, as I said before, Julie came on the air. If you're struggling with addiction, there is hope. And if you'll just go to Teen Challenge, just look online. It's a great place to, to throw yourself in to get hope, to get help. Jesus does transform lives. The book, Giving Hope and Address. Friends, after you read it, post a review on Amazon. Encourage others to get it. Julie, great talking with you. Thanks for being on the air today. Thank you, Dr. Brown. God bless. <laughs>